the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the life of Christ. It was about three weeks ago that we said that Jesus, well, when he was left behind, unrealizingly left behind at the Passover, he was at the temple. And when Mary and Joseph found him, found him and Mary asked him why, he says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's affairs? And that was what was important to Jesus. That's what drove him and caused him to, I guess I would say, do the father's will. It was his father's business. In fact, when we said in that John chapter 4 passage where there was a woman from Samaria who came to get water, he talked to her about living water. When his disciples got back with some food, he said, you have food that I don't know about. And they wondered if somebody brought him some. They were thinking on human terms, not thinking about the food that was the work of God. That was what motivated Jesus. Because in that way, he would be focused on the things of God and would glorify him. Now, there are many ways in which Jesus glorified God on the earth. But I think significantly it was doing his father's affairs, being about them and being concerned about them. Last Sunday, I took from the Beatitudes and we paralleled the life of Christ. Because Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 that we were to be conformed into the image of his son. And that Peter would talk about in 1 Peter chapter 2, that he gave us an example to walk in his steps. Now, in the context of Peter, I recognize that was in the midst of suffering because Jesus suffered, as we just remembered in the Lord's Supper. He suffered and died on a cross that we might live. But it's the idea that he gave us an example. And so a few years ago, it was very popular, maybe 20 years now as time flies, uh, the bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Or as one said, what would Jesus desire? And that is that we would walk in his steps. So today, we come before the throne of God for encouragement from his word and reflect about how did Jesus do what he did? And I would just begin with a question then, that is to say, what did Jesus do while he was on this earth? Think about that just for a moment. What first thing pops into your mind? You know, earlier I mentioned the song, Why did my Savior come to earth? And the refrain, because he loved me so. He gave his life so that we might live. But what did Jesus do while he was on the earth? And we could say many things that he did. From a human standpoint, he lived just like you and me. He was the son of a carpenter, Joseph. And so his life would have been that of a laborer. And Joseph was probably one who didn't build the fine cabinetry that we would see in modern day homes. But things were rough. He would probably take the trees and cut them down and mill out the lumber and construct maybe carts, maybe houses. It was heavy work that Jesus did. He didn't have the luxury of sitting, going in after a hard day at work to take a nice hot shower leisurely and relax. No, it was hard. Life was hard then. But he worked. And so we would think about those human aspects of his life. He worked, he slept, he ate, he drank. He did all of those things 
that you and I do today. But then we try to say, well, really, what did he do? And we know that there were other aspects of his life that he did. They performed miracles. In fact, if we look at Peter's sermon in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we see that that's exactly what Peter said when he started that sermon, saying, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. These were the very people who were probably days earlier, weeks earlier, shouting before Pilate, crucify him. We want Barabbas, crucify Jesus. They knew the things that he did. They didn't arrest him at the temple when he was teaching. They came under the stealth of darkness and arrested him and subjected him to a trial and to his condemnation. What did he do to deserve that? Well, the people thought he was a prophet in the way that he spoke about the things of God. They knew he was a prophet because of the miracles that he did. Because how can somebody do the things that he did unless God was with him? Oh, there were many things going on. We know that the miracles, the wonders and signs, and really those are just the three descriptions for the same event. As one I listened to the other day put it out, miracles are those things which, well, contravene nature, God's natural law. They defy it. How many people do you know that can walk on water? I know of two, Jesus and Peter. And Peter, when his questioned it in his mind just a little bit, realized what he was doing and saw the waves in the, in the, on the sea, he became frightened. He lost his nerve. He lost his faith. And he said, Jesus saved me. And of course, Jesus did. And they got into the boat and they were on the other side. Uh, Jesus walked on water. How many people could do that? How many people during the midst of a violent storm could say, peace be still and the storm would be calmed? No, those are miracles that Jesus did. And we know those are just a couple of them. In fact, in John's gospel, he took some water and turned it into wine. That was his first miracle that John records for us of his ministry. There was a wedding that Jesus was invited to, and they ran out of wine. And his mother said, uh, they don't have wine. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, woman, what, do I ha what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is just saying that this is not my time yet. But Mary, knowing that Jesus would take care of the situation in his compassionate nature and heart, not wanting the host and the bridegroom to be embarrassed, she just said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone pots, John writes, that were there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the water pots with water. They filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And he tasted it, which the water which had become wine, did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then, of course, the 
head waiter says to the groom, the bridegroom, you've saved the best wine until the very end. Now, think about this. How do you suppose those servants reacted to what had happened there? They go out and fill these six water pots with, say, 120 gallons of water. And they take a cup out and they give it to the head waiter. And he says, wow, this is the best wine I've tasted. You've saved it for the very last, unlike others who bring out the cheap stuff later on. And John tells us at the end that this was his first miracle that he did in his ministry. Uh, That was it. There was a time in John chapter 4 that there was a nobleman whose son was ill. And he came to Jesus for healing of his son. And Jesus told him, your son lives. The man believed and he left and went back home. His sons met him, and they, he, quite, he asked them, you know, when did he begin to get better? And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he believed in his whole household. This, again, was the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come into Judea, into Galilee. So the people that saw that, they knew it was a miracle. But it was more than that. and. and Peter talked in Acts chapter 2 about miracles, wonders, and that was the reaction of the people. The miracle was that which controverted nature. It went against natural law. The wonder was what was in the heart of the people. But the third aspect of it is signs. And we notice that this John records for us in chapter 4, this was the second sign that Jesus performed. What's a sign for? It is to signify something. It is to point out something. The sign in itself is not important, but what it points to. You know, it's interesting, just north of town on the highway here, you'll see road signs. Those signs give information. One will say, I think it is Phoenix, 189 miles or 179 miles, San Diego, 160 miles. The sign itself really isn't that important, but the information on it is. Because if somebody's wanting to know how far it is to Phoenix, they get information from that sign. And the miracles that Jesus did were a sign to point people to look that something was among them, that God was in their midst. So, yes, Jesus did miracles, wonders, and signs. God performed them in their midst. They knew them. They couldn't deny them. What did Jesus do? He showed compassion to people. As he healed them of their affliction. I'm thinking right now about the lepers that were there. That would come to him and ask for their cleansing. To be healed. Jesus didn't do it for the fanfare. In fact, many times he would say, don't tell anybody. Just go show yourself to the priests. But they couldn't keep quiet. Because something great had been been done to them. But perhaps the one healing of the leper, the cleansing of the leper that strikes me the most wasn't the ten at a distance. It was the one when he reached out and touched him because a leper was unclean. And I think about how long that man went, perhaps, without having human contact. Context. You know, he had to be out away from people. You talk about social distancing. A leper had to socially distance. In fact, he would have to do more than that 
because he'd have to go into any area, not only living by himself, but when he walked, he would have to shout out, unclean, unclean, lest someone should come in contact with him inadvertently. He had to warn them. Well, for that man to go so long without human touch and for Jesus to reach out and touch him in the healing process was amazing to me. What did Jesus do? What does he expect us to do? I think we can look at all of those things that Jesus did, and those were wonderful miracles, and it really shows us his life, his compassion, his concern for people. But he didn't heal everyone. He didn't cleanse every leper. He didn't cast out the demon out of every demon-possessed person. He did many. He did multitudes of them. But he didn't do it all. But what did Jesus do? And that's what I want us to really think about and focus, because what Jesus did is what he's told us to do. And that is Jesus taught. In Matthew's gospel, it starts out very easily. In fact, in chapter four of Matthew's gospel, it'll be replicated in all of the other gospels in one way or another. It says in chapter four, after his temptation in the wilderness, it says in verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was a herald of God. He was proclaiming God's kingdom, telling them to get ready, that they needed to repent, similar to what John was saying. But it was by the verbal proclamation of the things of God. He would just stand there and proclaim God's kingdom. But then he would get very intimate. In Matthew chapter 5, it says in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, and he gave us the Beatitudes. We're not going to go in through all of those today. We're not even going to read it. But he began to teach them. The word here recognizes in the original language that it's something that Jesus always was doing, that he began. It, this wasn't a one-time big gospel meeting, if you will. This was the normal way of Jesus teaching. He was instructing the people. His teaching was significant. It was not like others who did teaching. In fact, in we read about it and we see it, get an inkling of it when he says in chapter 5 and verse 27, you have heard that it was said. In this context, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. They knew what the law said. You can't commit adultery. But they would not have any qualms about inappropriate looks and thoughts he says it was said whoever sends his wife away let him give her a certificate of divorce that's the way it was from the beginning but i say to you that everyone who puts his wife away except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery and marries whoever marries a put away woman commits adultery so he takes it and says, you just can't literally put your wife away, send her away, and get her out of your, out of your home. 
No. Moses had a law. Moses gave a law, and he did permit that certificate of divorce. But they weren't in the habit of doing that, from my reading and understanding of Scripture. It was too cumbersome to go to trial, to go to court, to have a formal formal bill of divorcement given. Jesus took it and said, you're doing what you're doing is wrong. God does not like it. You've heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vow to the Lord. And he goes on and and builds on that, ultimately to the point at the end of Matthew chapter 7, what does it say about Jesus' teaching? When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. I would like to say and think that those scribes were good, noble teachers. But I don't think that no matter how good and how noble a teacher is, he could come anywhere near close to teaching like Jesus did. You see, there was something in it. Now, the mark of a good teacher, in my opinion, one of the marks, there are probably several if we think about it, would be that there is a passion. Maybe the scribes were passionate about the letter, the minutia, but not about the spirit of the law. Not what God really wanted them to learn. But Jesus taught as one having authority. He not only taught the law accurately, but he also taught it with passion, with conviction, that this is the way it is. This is what God wants. So much so that on an occasion in Matthew chapter 14, when there was a slight controversy about the disciples of Jesus not washing their hands before they ate. Because John, Matthew writes in, John, in Matthew chapter 15, some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, this would have been a ceremonial washing. It wasn't washing for the sake of cleanliness and hygiene. No, they had their meticulous way that they would take and pour water on their hands, on each finger, to make it ceremonially pure. But Jesus, probably knowing exactly what they were talking about, said, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, they came and said, your disciples don't follow the tradition of the elders. Jesus says, you all don't hold to the commandments of God. And he said, for whoever, God says, honor your mother and father. Whoever speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. Therefore, I can't help you. He said, he is not to honor his father or mother. By this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So Isaiah the prophet rightly said about you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And Jesus and after Jesus called the crowd to him, said, hear and understand. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Well, it's noted then that the Pharisees, the scribes, they were offended by this, by the statement. 
And Peter, after they get by themselves, asks them in verse 15, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach as an eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, those th things that defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile him. No, it's what's coming out of the heart that is showing that defilement. And Jesus was trying to help them realize by his teaching that God had a standard. And it was the spirit of what God was saying, not their corrupt traditions by which they tried to define what was acceptable before God. No, God set the standard. God would determine what was acceptable. And Jesus spent his life teaching and preaching. Now, as we noted earlier in Matthew chapter 4 and the other Gospels, Mark says it early in chapter 1 and verse 15, where it talks about Jesus and his ministry as he was beginning it, saying, uh, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, chapter 1 and verse 14, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. He was preaching the gospel of God. He was preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom is the Greek word basileia. It's an abstract noun. We typically think about it in physical terms, because how do you describe something that is abstract? It's very difficult to do. If there's a king, there has to be a territory, land. Uh, in this case, Jesus is king, but it's his kingdom is not of this world. Well, it's of our hearts. It's a heavenly kingdom. He rules in our heart. There are subjects, you and me, mankind. And there is a law that has been given that we follow, the law of Christ. So preaching that rule of God over the lives and in the lives and hearts and minds of people is what Jesus came to do, saying God's kingdom is here. And I know in Matthew 16 that the church is a microcosm of the kingdom of God, of this rule. That's where he rules in this earth, in this life, through his church. But God's rule is over all creation in heaven and on earth. So Jesus was proclaiming God's rule. And they needed to change their lives so they would submit to God's rule. And so on that day of Pentecost... After Jesus' death and resurrection, after those weeks preceding his death and resurrection, Peter was there to stand up with the rest of his brothers, saying, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to death by the cross, nailed to a cross by the hands of God, godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And he's kept preaching and teaching. And he says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. 
therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I want to ask you to think about something in that passages that I read from Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon, the apostles preaching on Pentecost. How many people did they heal at that point in time? How many demons had they cast out? How many things had they revealed? None. What they were doing was preaching and teaching the resurrected Christ. They were boldly proclaiming it, so much so that verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They hadn't done any miracles. Now God had done a miracle, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, enabling the apostles to speak in languages that they hadn't studied, to have complete recollection as Jesus promised them of all that he said and did to guide them into all truth. But the apostles had done no miracles. They were just boldly standing up, proclaiming God's rule, God's kingdom, the resurrected Christ. And what was the response of the people? They were pricked in their heart. They realized from the spoken word what they had done and that Jesus was, in fact, God's Messiah. And Peter tells them, to the answer to that question, repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified, kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. Not one miracle, save what God had done, but Peter couldn't claim to have done that one. And, in fact, when Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 healed a man who had been lame, he says, I don't have anything. I don't have silver or gold to give you, but what I do give you, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And seizing him by the right hand, chapter 3 and verse 7, he raised him up and immediately his feet were strengthened and ankles were strengthened. This man had been lame from his mother's birth, from his birth. And so a miracle had been done. But it wasn't the miracle that persuaded the people. Well, it got them to listen because something that had never been done before had been done. And they saw it and it caused wonder. But it was a sign to show them that something greater was among them. And there was a message that they needed to hear and listen to. And that message was pointed to Jesus. Later on in the book of Acts, in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, we know that there was a Roman centurion who had a vision to send to the scene for one named Simon. And then Peter had the same vision. God was revealing to him that there were men coming from Cornelius and that he needed to go with them. And so he gets up and he goes. 
And he says in chapter 10 and verse 31, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Excuse me. That's what he's referring to them. He says, I'm here. I'm here. Verse 33. So I sent for you immediately. Cornelius telling him this. And I sent for you immediately to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. You see, Cornelius wasn't there to witness a miracle. Cornelius was there to hear what God was going to say through his servant, Peter. And so Peter realized and opens his mouth saying, I know and understand that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And so that is the word he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And then he starts rehearsing all that was going on with Jesus in the land of Judea and how he was crucified. And God raised him up on the third day. He granted that he had become visible, verse 30. And so it was during that time while Peter was preaching that God enabled those people in the house of Cornelius. It says in verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And Peter realized God doesn't show partiality. And he says, can we refuse water for those to be for these to be baptized who have received the Spirit, Holy Spirit as we did? And he ordered them to be baptized. Now, in chapter 11, he's explaining to some of his Jewish brethren exactly what was going on. Because they took issue with him because he went to the house of uncircumcised men. And Peter was explaining it. And we come down to verse 12. Chapter 11 of Acts, verse 12. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgiving. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Cornelius and his friends, his household, they weren't saved when God out, when they were received the Holy Spirit and were able to speak in languages that they hadn't studied. No, Peter had to speak to them words by which they would be saved. You see, that's the primacy of the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word of God. And so Jesus would pray for his apostles in John chapter 17, a passage we alluded to in our class today, because he was going to send the disciples out into the world. He was going to leave them there in the world. He says in verse 14 of chapter 17, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they may also they themselves may also be sanctified. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see, 
the word is what was going to persuade people. The word of God was what was going to convict people of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And so John would nearly close his gospel in chapter 20, saying, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing may have life in his name. You see, John gave seven miracles in his gospel account of the life of Christ. Because it wasn't the miracles that had the power. The miracles were that which, well, as we said, contravened God's law. Walking on water, turning water to wine, healing a man's son from a great distance. Every miracle in John's gospel was designed to point to Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it was the word of God that would be poured out, that would be given to people, that would persuade them that they might be saved. And so, similar to that fashion, in Acts chapter 17, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, as he was there, and he sees this idol to an unknown God. And he says, this, I, what you worship in ignorance, verse 23. I mean, he says in verse 22, I saw that you're very religious people. You're very, very religious because I found this altar to an unknown God. What you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. The Lord God, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he had need of anything, since he himself gives people to all people, life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth, the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they should, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, although he is not far off from each one of us. It was the word of God that Paul was proclaiming. He was lifting up and exalting God through the proclaimed word. He says in verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom Jesus has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In that sermon, what miracle did Paul do? Not one that I can read, but he was preaching the word of God. And so... As I close, that's what Jesus came to do. That's what the apostles were doing, declaring the word of God. And that's what he wants us to do as we go through and interact with people. The passage that we're very familiar with, Matthew 28, we talked about it when we closed our study out a few weeks ago in Matthew. Jesus said in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Literally, it is, as you are going, make disciples. Challenge people, encourage them to look to Jesus and to follow him. Teaching them, you know, you, when you teach someone the gospel, they're going to ask, what must I do to be saved? And we'll tell them, repent and be baptized so that your sins might be washed away. And then we teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded 
the apostles that he commands us, and that he's with us always. As we learn in 1 Peter, he's with us in the midst of persecution, that we have before us a joy inexpressible, that we have a crown reserved for us in heaven. We have an inheritance, imperishable and undefiled. So that's what we do as we seek to glorify God. Through Christ, we lift him up with the spoken word. We don't have to worry about miracles. We don't need them. We have the confirmed word of God. It has the power to convict one of sin. It has the power to convict you and me of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And that same power is what we deliver when we talk to people about the gospel of Christ. Well, I'd like you to think about those things, and I know there may be some there who may be watching this today or later on, if the video link is shared, if the sermon is shared. And if that's the case and you'd like to give, send me some comments, I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to know what you're thinking. Most of all, I'd like to know about your relationship with Christ. How are you doing? Let me know.